0: Does COVID have you feeling stalled at work? Cornell ILR Professional Education can help you get back on the road to career growth. Visit discover.ilr.cornell.edu to get started.
1: Work is all around us. It defines us. And the future of work impacts nearly every person on our planet. The ILR School at Cornell University is at the center of work, labor, and employment. Influencing policy and practice On the most pressing issues facing employees and employers. In this episode, Dean Colvin and litigator Douglas Wigner discuss the impact of the Me Too movement on sexual harassment in the workplace.
0: Well, thanks very much for joining us today. Uh, This is a... uh, uh, A chance to reflect back on something that I was just realizing is more recent than uh, I think we often think. Uh, So this is about two years since the Me Too movement kicked off, and I was just hearing that stat, and it feels like it's been much, much longer. This has been something that's become such a big part of our our culture and how people think about uh, issues around sexual harassment in the workplace. Uh, So just kind of to kick things off, I'd be really interested in your take, you know, somebody who's really represented um, a lot of clients in major Me Too type disputes, um, you know, thinking about what has been the impact of this this movement in, in, you know, two short years.
2: Well, Alex, thank you for having me, first of all. And I I think that you're correct that the, the Me Too movement as we know it, Uh, started in 2017 when Alyssa Milano, who has been uh, credited with popularizing the Me Too slogan, but, and she did that to encourage people to come forward and say Me Too if they had experienced sexual harassment or assault to give a sense of the magnitude of the problem. But I think in order to look at where we are now, we really need to go way back um, because this has been a a steady, slow movement that that goes back really to the creation of sexual harassment laws, believe it or not, that that started to come about in the 1970s, when women were entering the workforce, and uh, sexual harassment was just starting to come about, and the law was starting to change. Uh, Of course, you know, you had the very popular cases of, William Kennedy Smith, Anita right. Hill, Monica Lewinsky. yep. And, and to fast forward, actually, the Me Too slogan actually wasn't Alyssa Milano. It was actually a woman by the name of Tarana Burke who came up with that slogan back in 2006. And, and she is and was a civil rights activist. And she began to use this phrase, Me Too. This is before... Twitter, but yeah. um, used that slogan to raise the awareness of, and pervasiveness of sex abuse and assault in society. And she was really focused on people of color and people in marginalized communities. So it's been a, a slow, steady process to where we are now, and, um, and things have, have obviously changed since 2017.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, think back to the uh, Clarence Thomas hearings, right? When I was in law school, you know, almost 30 years ago now, uh, when it seemed like, you know, this issue was first getting that really big public attention, um, and, you know, maybe that's what the the attention to the hashtag MeToo thing the last couple of years is, is that, you know, increase of public attention, right? So a refocusing again, right? And we've sort of seen these kind of, I guess, waves of attention to a problem that doesn't seem to go away.
2: Yeah. And, and it doesn't go away, um, because of a number of different problems in terms of the, uh, people's perceptions of people who have been sexually assaulted or people who are survivors. And I think Anita Hill was a a good example of this, but there are many other women, including, um, my former client, Nafi Satu Diallo, who was, uh, who was raped by Dominique Strauss-Kahn, who was right. gonna, would have been the next president of, of France. But the problems tend to be that people, unfortunately, don't tend to believe the events happen the way someone who comes forward as a survivor says. They often blame victims. They often discount the injury. And there's, there's a lack of care. And so those things are changing. Uh, here we are in 2019. We're a few weeks away from the Harvey Weinstein criminal trial that's expected to start in January. And that I think that trial I think will be a, a really important litmus test to see really where we are. Because as we know, Harvey Weinstein's defense is, is going to be to attack victims and, and to, to to use the some of the old generalizations that people used to to, to think were true. For instance, that if a woman came to a man uh, looking for a job and something happened, that wasn't necessarily um, a bad thing, and she put herself in the position. And, And then if after she was sexually assaulted, she went back to see that person. That would undermine her credibility. These are the sorts of things that Harvey Weinstein in January is going to use to try and discredit the victims. And it'll be interesting to see that... What happens in two thousand twenty three years after the yeah. the Me Too movement has really kicked off?
0: So you you do get exactly that kind of response where there's sort of a, an assumption that somehow if the you know if you can show the character of the victim um, is is not perfect right that undermines the allegation. I mean you you've represented clients subject to these kind of attacks. I remember the Strauss-Kahn case, we saw some of that. Um, how, how do you respond to that? How do you, how do you kind of get past uh, those kind of attacks? How do you respond to that?
2: Yeah, I mean, It's really hard, and uh, unfortunately there are even some you know, plaintiff's lawyers. Um, we saw, for instance, Lisa Bloom uh, who, is, who had held herself out as a woman's right activist. She's the daughter of Gloria Allred. Um, but what we found out was that she was working for Harvey Weinstein in an effort to undermine Rose McGowan and to attack her character and credibility. So this is a problem. And uh, what I mean, first of all, the, the courts should be the gatekeeper here to prevent these things from happening. There are different federal rules of civil of, of evidence and there are other state rules that prevent these things from happening. But unfortunately, in my experience, judges often permit discovery into things that I, I think that they ought not to. And of course, there's the, the dissemination through newspapers and, and social media uh, of negative things about clients or women who come forward and, and claim that they've been sexually assaulted. And that, that's exactly what Lisa Bloom was going to do with Rose McGowan. And unfortunately, for instance, in, in the Dominique Strauss Kahn case, there were the, the New York Post on the, ran a story that she was a prostitute, which was blatantly false, but it was an attempt to undermine her character and her credibility. Uh, so we really need to, to, to make sure that these things aren't happening because what they do is they act as a disincentive for people to come forward. If they know that, their Facebook and their social media is going to be turned upside down. Every picture yeah. they is going to be examined and looked at. And the defense lawyers are going to be able to ask them questions about prior partners that they had and, and other, other things like that. It's going to be a real disincentive for people to step forward.
0: Yeah. I mean, it sometimes seems like there's um, um, a process where some of the cases get litigated in, in the PR space, right, through the media you know, at the same time, there's a court case going on. Uh, you know, are, are there ways in which, you know, the um, the public pressure uh, the uh, can be used in a positive way to, to help bring the claims? Uh, can, does that help you sometimes?
2: It does, it, it helps because in my experience, someone who has committed an act of sexual assault typically hasn't done it just one time. Right. So in my experience, by coming forward, uh, other people will come forward. And that obviously is a great asset to have when trying to hold somebody accountable because the the, the rules of, of evidence in certain circumstances permit uh, other women to support the the victim if it shows, for instance, a motive or intent or a modus operandi, in fact, in the uh, Bill Cosby case, that was that was used, yeah. and it will be used as well in the Harvey Weinstein case. One of my clients actually is going to be testifying in that trial as as what we call a malinger witness. But will be she's not the main victim of the case, right. but but she had a similar thing happen to her that supports the victims, and so. To answer your question specifically these things are coming out into the public is important because it it, it usually brings out other people
0: yeah so one of the things that um, you know is, is a challenge in getting that public attention is um, an issue both you and I have have uh, dealt with which is uh, mantra arbitration right and this is you know for our listeners you know where the employer requires, the employee to sign an agreement to arbitrate any disputes against the company, right? And this is this is mandatory because you have to sign it if you want the job, right? It's not There's not a choice there. And the problem you run into, you know, it might sound good in theory, you get something out of the courts, and not everybody loves being in the courts, but the reality is this is something set up by the employer, um, and when you get in it, it's a private forum so that you don't get to... Uh, tell anybody in the public about what's been going on. Um, uh, One of the most famous examples of this uh, was with the Fox News uh, Me Too cases and Gretchen Carlson there, who had a public uh, platform through being a journalist, uh, was forced into this private forum where she couldn't talk about her case. Um, Maybe could you tell us a little about your experience um, running into mandatory arbitration and, and how it's affected the cases that you've handled?
2: Yeah, and I was involved in, in the Roger Ailes and Bill O'Reilly cases as well, and, and was faced with that I- identical problem. And, and what Gretchen did and, and what many others have done in those circumstances is in an effort to get around it, although legally it's questionable whether it would ultimately prevail. Right was to, to sue individuals who they had not entered into an arbitration agreement with rather than sue the company.
0: So she sued Roger Ailes personally rather than Fox News.
2: That's right. Yeah. yeah. And, and because she and Roger Ailes had not uh, had a contract that required arbitration, although she and Fox did that that arguably covered their executives and employees. Right. But this, but this, uh, this problem, and I'll call it a problem because it, in my view, it's a problem because it it forces people into a confidential arbitration process before an action arises. So as they start their employment, they're given uh, as a condition to working at the company. They're told if they don't sign this, then they can't work there. Uh, most people would sign it and not think twice because right. they don't think they're going to be sexually assaulted in the workplace.
0: Yeah, nobody would take the job if you thought that. Right. Yeah. And then
2: three, four, five years later, something happens and then all of a sudden the employer breaks out this agreement that was signed on on the day of the first day of employment. And the problem is is that really you're you're now make, you're forcing a decision on a on a survivor that is really not fair. The decision should be made at the time of filing the lawsuit. And this is, not, this is not only true in the employment context, and uh, it's also true outside the employment context. For example, I represented uh, over 25 women who were sexually assaulted or raped by Uber drivers. And they, they were not employees of Uber. When they signed up for Uber in their terms and conditions that they agreed to when they downloaded the app, they agreed, like everybody else who got the Uber app to binding confidential arbitration. And some of these arbitrations, believe it or not, were to take place in the Netherlands.
0: <laughs> right. Conveniently located for everybody taking an Uber in New York City.
2: Exactly. And so um, so what we did is we, uh, we we did an open letter, which basically it was a letter to the, the board of, of Uber. And it was on behalf of our clients and asking them to, to do away with this mandatory arbitration provision. And to their credit, they, they did that. They've now uh, done away with the mandatory arbitration provision for not only sexual assault cases, but sexual harassment cases as well. And there are other companies that, that have followed their, their le- leading. Um, views on that, which is, which is a good trend.
0: Yeah, it's kind of interesting that we've seen uh, certain companies responding this way, right? So Uber uh, making changes, uh, Google's the other one that jumps to my mind, right? That uh, Google was also uh, using manager arbitration, and it turns out that they've had issues of sexual harassment by uh, at least one of their executives, and you, you 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 don't know if there are more cases, but at least one major executive was forced to resign with a pretty uh, substantial golden parachute um, uh, because of sexual harassment issues. And and they responded right after the Google uh, employees started walkouts and pressure campaigns. Uh, you know, I've, I've been kind of interested looking at these because it seems like there are these cases where. The public pressure makes a difference. The Ubers, the Googles. Um, I do wonder, you know, how far that that spreads. Right? Is that going to be effective in a broader set of employers or not? Right? Does it really substitute?
2: Yeah. Sadly, I I don't think it is going to be a a trend. I I would hope it would be, but I I don't think that will be the case. Uh, More times than not, unfortunately, I get a very nasty letter from. The company's lawyers threatening both myself and my client that if they were to do anything public that they'll they'll sue for breach of contract and all the damages that would result yeah. from public and and, and and you know we just actually uh sent an open letter uh to DLA Piper which is one of the largest law firms in the world you would think that a law firm would would try and lead by example and not force arbitration on their their attorneys uh, who have been sexually harassed or sexually assaulted uh, but unfortunately uh, not only have they refused to waive the arbitration provision they're they're defending that case in a, a pre me Too textbook manner of attacking the victim
0: right uh, you know one of the things that's that's striking about this area is that you know you do see uh, you do see companies that you you'd think would be um, trying to hold themselves out as, as exemplars of good behavior, you know, going for pretty hardball tactics. One of the things that I think is an interesting question that a lot of people wonder is, you know, are there better alternatives, right? You know, we know that, um, you know, sometimes the, the courts aren't as friendly to plaintiffs as they might be. You know, you've talked about... You know this sort of suspicion of the victim. Uh, mandatory arbitration, right? Arbitration sounds like a good alternative, but if it's this mandatory structure, that's not real helpful. Um, are there other ways that we could um, be resolving these conflicts better? Uh, you know, something like mediation, right? Is do you find mediation is a useful tool um, in these cases?
2: Yeah, I think uh, so. Mediation, which is a non-binding process where a neutral person tries to facilitate a resolution amongst the parties is is definitely something that that I have used over the years many times successfully i would say though that a mandatory mediation process though is something i would i don't think is particularly helpful because if somebody's being compelled to mediate they're usually not going to really right. In the process, in good faith. Mediation, you need both sides to be there and want to be there. So, mediation is good if both sides want to do it. But if one side doesn't want to do it, then I think it's a waste of time.
0: Right. And so, you know, you're not really in a voluntary situation, right? So, the idea that, you know, kind of ideally you want to have voluntary consensual ways, but, you know, that requires two sides to tango if you're going to do that.
2: Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, there really is no perfect system. Uh, you know, there are definitely pros and cons of arbitration as well as as, as the court process as well. But I, I think what I would say is this, is that at the end of the day, the choice, in my view, should be left to the victim uh, after the uh, occurrence of what happened. Because the person's already been victimized once and to be forced into a uh, some sort of a uh, dispute resolution system that they don't want to partake in, to me is is making the the underlying uh, violence that happened to them even worse.
0: That kind of ties into something that I think has been a tough issue to deal with, and that's the question of the role of non-disclosure agreements, um, where many times you have know, settlements of. Uh, these complaints involve a non-disclosure agreement, so you get the settlement, but you know you can't then talk about what happened. And that strikes me as a tough issue because um, then you're no longer able to communicate what happened and, and bring attention to you know what could be a serial perpetrator. Um, at the same time. You know, you could understand the victims' desire not to have, you know, to want to have privacy themselves, and to uh, to have you know have their reputation attacked um, in the public. Uh, you know, what are your thoughts on on the nondisclosure agreement problem?
2: It's a really difficult question and situation. I, I think that. Uh, Gloria Allred has been unfairly attacked, for example, by Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey, who wrote the book She Said about yeah. the Weinstein case. They, they did a podcast in which they essentially blamed her for entering into confidential settlement agreements. And that's because people didn't know about it. Uh, it permitted uh, Harvey Weinstein to continue to do what, what he did. But it's not that simple because as you just noted, Many of our clients don't want to be do anything public. And so uh, you know that of course the company's paying for confidentiality to some extent, but our client also doesn't want their name out there, and not on every client, but a lot of clients. And so I think you have to give ultimately the survivor the choice of, of what they want. But what I would say is this, this is the, this is the one thing where the law really needs to develop is in terms of holding executives, directors, and officers liable for the conduct of their senior-level people who they know have engaged in unlawful conduct and have settled cases in the past. You know, we saw with Harvey Weinstein, his brother Bob Weinstein, and the other directors and officers know about his conduct. The same thing was true with Bill O'Reilly. Fox knew about his conduct. But unfortunately, the way the law, the law on holding directors and officers liable goes back to the beginning of time. And and the only way you can hold a director and officer liable for an intentional act of someone like Harvey Weinstein is where the, the defendant, Harvey Weinstein, uses what we call a chattel, uses some sort of equipment from the company or uh, and, and so basically unless they use like the company car or they do it on the company property. Or at the office. Or the office is no way of doing it. But of course what we know is that most city sexual assaults take place either in hotels yeah. or, or somewhere else. And so it doesn't really address the question is what which is this, is whether it's foreseeable or not. Should the directors and officers know that this might happen? Is it foreseeable? But unfortunately the courts have not adopted that standard as of now
0: yeah um, yeah I think this does feed a public um, cynicism about uh, the law in this area Um, you know as well as as the liability talking about you know there's also the uh, situations where companies do you know Get the person to step aside, you know, a sort of exit from the company, and they walk away with you know tens of millions of dollars in some executive contract, um, you know. Which at the same time, if a, you know regular rank and file employee is terminated, they they get nothing, right? There is no just cause, there is no severance. But then you see examples like this Google one, where the executive walked away with tens of millions of dollars in a golden parachute, and you know, I think you know feeds outrage.
2: Yeah, I mean, we just saw, you know, WeWork's CEO and founder um, Adam Newman walk away with hundreds of millions of dollars, and I represent um, his former chief of staff, who he uh, marginalized and sidelined because when she came back from her maternity leave and um, and paid her less than somebody who was doing the exact same job as she was, and so, um, you know. With Bill O'Reilly, it was even worse. They renewed his contract, knowing that he had engaged in these these types of conduct and put a provision in his contract where he would have to pay a certain fine if he did it again in the future. So they actually contemplated that this would happen again.
0: One of the things I think is significant about the Me Too movement when we look at the Public attitude about the fairness of our system, our economic system, and uh, structures of power in our corporations is that it it exposes um, sort of a lack of accountability in the upper echelons. Right when you see this sort of um, the Harvey Weinstein's, the Matt Lowers, the you know the chief executives who are who have been getting away with this for a while, and they don't seem to be genuinely held accountable often, right? Even if there's a, um, you know, successful lawsuit, it's often the company paying the money, right? And so, you know, you do get this public frustration.
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean, it really, um, it it emanates from the lack of senior women in C-suite uh, positions, and having. You know, very few women in these companies who are the, the CEOs or running the companies who, in my view, wouldn't wouldn't tolerate this conduct and turn a blind eye to it. Yeah. And and so we, we obviously see it now going on with NBC, um, and then we've seen even you know with uh, uh, the National Enquirer, you know, take, buying stories and 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 like stories that would never see the light of day with Karen McDougal, right. like that. So. Yeah, burying the story. Yeah, burying stories, paying off people to bury stories. But that's really you know t- what the Me Too movement is about. And, and we're not done with it yet. But it really is all about giving people the, the ability and power uh, and the confidence to, to be able to come out and say, I was sexually assaulted. I was raped. Even if that person... Uh, who raped them or sexually assaulted them is a powerful person. And some of the stigma, not all of it, and the blame and the discounting uh, is now dissipating and we're starting to move in the right direction. But I, I do believe that there's so much more to be done, especially on the legal front, in terms of, of some of the laws and evidentiary uh, things that, that still, in my, in my view, uh, make it more difficult, a lot more difficult for for victims to uh, ultimately prevail.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, one of the things that we've seen, you know, this problem's been around for a long time. You know, there's been attempts to start addressing it. You know, I think that the Me Too movement has picked things up in terms of giving prominence attention to it. But it's really clear that we're going to be Dealing with this for a long time to come. This is this is not something that's uh, that we're going to have any kind of quick fix, and it's going to be a social problem. We need to we need to keep addressing.
2: Yeah, that's right. But you know what? We're going to have our first female 007, Lashana Lynch. So we're making progress.
0: We're making some progress. Uh, First female Doctor Who as well for fans of sci-fi. So uh, you know, let let's see what happens. Thanks very much, Doug. Yeah, real pleasure talking.
2: Yeah, you were great. Very easy (laughs) to talk to. So I appreciate it.
1: Thank you for joining us for work, exploring the future of work, labor, and employment. In our next episode, Dean Colvin talks with New York State Assemblyman Sean Ryan about Buffalo's economic revitalization and its impact on work. Again, thank you for listening and learn more about ILR by visiting us on the web at ilr.cornell.edu.